This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Daniel, we just had the most amazing conversation with with Dr. David Nace. We're so fortunate to have him on Race to Value this week, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm just my mind is blown. I'm thinking about all the work that he's done. I mean, truly, Dr. Nace is a Renaissance man. I mean, he's the guy's worked with Hillary Clinton on a task force thinking about HMOs and integrated delivery systems. He worked with Diane Holder to create UPMC, which is now the third largest IDN. He's been instrumental in healthcare redesign and the patient-centered medical home movement. You know, he worked with Aetna and done some amazing work there. He helped build Optum's behavioral health program. He's been a part of 13 different MAs. And now he's with Innovacer, which is by far what I'm seeing is one of the leading data activation companies and really leading this movement towards a unified patient record. Yeah, Eric, what a great guy and just a, a fun personality to go along with it, I think has probably led to a lot of his success as well. And, you know, talking about Innovacer, I'm just really impressed by here's this organization that has a great year in 2019. You know, we, we're all impacted by COVID in 2020. And you'd think these guys might take a step back and, and have some sort of disruption that uh, impacts their revenue. But no, they're continuing to grow. They're getting more investment. They're getting more growth because the solutions that they have are truly needed in this time when the industry is recognizing that value is the way to go. I, I know, Dan. I mean, I just think about how valued of a partner Innovacer has been with the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. And I, I really appreciate the support of Innovacer and joining us in this movement towards workforce development and value-based care. And we talked about so many interesting topics. I think our listeners this week are, are truly in for, in for a treat. So why don't we kick it off and introduce Dr. David Nace of Innovacer. Dr. David Nace, welcome to Race to Value. David, great to have you here with us today. We're excited for this interview and conversation. 
Yeah, no, I'm very excited to be here for this conversation. And as you know, this is a very important time in our industry to be having it. And by the way, this is my first podcast. <laughs> That's amazing, David. We're so excited to be your first podcast. So, David, you and I have talked a little bit over the past few years as you've been a member of the ACLC. Uh, something that stands out to me is you knew in the fourth grade that you wanted to be a doctor. And not only that, you knew that you wanted to practice medicine in a semi-rural town in the West, in the mountains, uh, which is pretty impressive to me that you know you knew at that young age and then you pursued and you did those things. Along the way, you've talked about becoming a little disenfranchised in medical school and your residency and your practice, um, and data became really important to you. I'm just hoping you can walk us through that journey a little bit and talk about what happened and, and, and how you ended up where you are today. No, that's a great question, and thanks for pointing out the history there. I, you know, I grew up watching a television show called Marcus Welby about a family physician who was a trusted advisor to his patients uh, and very close, closely regarded, highly regarded by the community as a trusted agency for the community, for the population, if you will. And that's sort of the way I view what being a physician was about. And I like the idea of living in the mountains because I love the mountains <laughs> and being in a community where I could have that kind of relationship. In my family medicine training, I found that uh, in this fee-for-service environment that we seem to have thrived in for so long, uh, in the wild west of what we call healthcare, there was more of an interest in billing and providing the service that you see and treating the partial aspect of the patient for the service you provide. And the family physician or the primary care physician was sort of left at the bottom of the totem pole, if you will, of the medical community uh, from a cultural perspective. And so that part frustrated me. I also felt like I didn't have the data and information about my patients other than keeping a paper record where before the patient would arrive, I'd be able to review who they were, what was going on in their life, and be able to make that personal connection to really have an impact on their life and their health. And so these are the things that really became the foundation of my journey in the healthcare industry, which has been moving into thinking about how do we provide healthcare to a population? How do we think about coordinating care? Uh, how do we think about using analytics and data and better information to understand and then the frustration of why are we not able to connect in the way that these magical tools we all use, like going on the internet to use Amazon to buy things or searching things on Google or hailing a ride by Uber, don't exist in healthcare, where we have so many fragmented and discoordinated players in the healthcare industry, and the patient is left to naught with the frustration of trying to navigate. So um, that brings us, I think, to a number of conversations today. So uh, hopefully that answers the question and gives you a sense of my journey. Definitely so, David. And we just are such big fans of the work that you're doing there at Innervacer. And you mentioned just the importance of having free-flowing data and being able to treat patients effectively. And now that's all the more important. I, I want to explore this a little bit more with you uh, in terms of the work that Innervacer is doing and data act activation and really empowering the delivery of value-based care. And, and especially in light of the current pandemic and all these economic challenges. From the outside looking in, you know, when I think about Innovacer, you know, I've, I've been a fan for such a long time and been following the company. And, 
it looks like you had a banner year in 2019. Innovator launched a single data solution for Medicare Advantage plans. You're really on the forefront of leveraging the fire interoperability standard. You launched a new PCMH solution. You completed a Series B raise. You received accolades. I saw that you guys won a, a MedTech Breakthrough Award. 2020, it looks like it's going to be another great year. You have Series C funding. You have HIMSS 20 coming. You're going to have a big unveil for your unified patient record. And then, boom, COVID happens. <laughs> and I want to understand that. How, I mean, how has the pandemic changed your perspective on the movement to value-based care? I mean, how... What is Innovacer doing now to respond to population health needs in this current climate and with the pandemic? I mean, I, I'm really interested about, you know, what you're seeing now and what you're doing in virtual care, embedding care protocols into CM workflows and supporting patient education. And then really what Innovacer is doing now in this unique historical moment to really evolve as a company to drive value even further in this post-pandemic world. No, I appreciate it, and, and thanks so much for the interest in Invaser and what we're doing here. Uh, we have been on a, a tremendously exciting journey at this company, even in the pandemic, if you will. Uh, in fact, it's been more exciting than ever. I, and I appreciate you pointing out so many different aspects of things that we're doing. And sometimes that you know, is perplexing to people is, what is Invaser? It seems to be doing all these different things. At our core, we are a technology company that provides a data platform. And what I mean by that is a new technology for healthcare, the ability to rapidly bring in data from any source, manage the high quality of that data and create a single view of the patient or population in near or real time, and then activate that data. So let me explain activation is, how do you put the insights that are needed into the workflow of the various constituents and have them work as a team and be efficient in what they're doing within the workflow that they do. So let me give you an example. If I'm a driver of a car, I'm driving and I'm using Waze on my phone and I've got my dashboard in front of me, I'm looking at my speed and Waze may say, oh, by the way, there's an accident ahead, make a right and you'll save 13 minutes. That's an insight in my workflow. So when we think about providing that data, making that available to the constituents involved with dealing with a patient or a population. So in accountable care, as an example, we know that is a physician, practice, care manager, maybe a community worker, if they're leveraging the community and accountable social determinants of care, uh, being able to provide them insights and pr provide the people that are managing, say, a value-based contract with the data and information to effectively manage that contract or a series of contracts effectively by providing insights in whatever their dashboard is. Could be Epic, Cerner, or some other EMR or any EMR. It could be a care management solution. It could be, if you're a patient, a smartphone you're carrying. How do you connect and coordinate them and give them insights so they can work as a team together? So this is the core of what we're doing. And then there's also other players, like how do we do that in a fee-for-service arena where, say, you're managing the, a surgical case, or what we often call that patient-centered surgical home, and carry that from the beginning of determining the risk of that patient, managing, coordinating that care in a very patient-centered way through the handoff back to primary care. 
So we're, we are offering this sort of cloud in the same way uh, that Amazon has done this, say, in the retail space, where we all know we can go on and purchase and supply chain is connected, and we're all kind of working together <laughs> with information that we need. In fact, the platform itself gets to know us. In healthcare, as you know, it's been very fragmented. People have data warehouses, and the tools that we use often have databases underneath them that are servants to the application. And no one's connecting everything in a patient-centered way or a population-centered way. So that's a high-level view of sort of how we think about the market uh, and what we are currently offering in healthcare. The pandemic, interestingly, you know, we've had this tremendous growth starting in the accountable care space. And you know, when the pandemic started, we thought, oh my gosh, what do we do now? <laughs> like everyone else. And we thought we might hit a wall. Interestingly, this platform we have, and you know, you brought up the issue of our fire enablement in terms of interoperability, with this sort of innovation, this sort of technology platform, by the way, the name Innovator came from Innovation Accelerator, it allows people to use data and quickly innovate on top of the data and then create solutions literally by pivoting on a dime. So we were able to do that when the pandemic hit, we quickly assessed the needs of our clients and created a COVID-19 management solution, which allowed physicians, practices, hospitals to quickly deploy and connect with their patients virtually to a telehealth uh, solution and be able to manage their care using that data and connect all of the various players, whether you're coming to the hospital or whether you're needed to be triaged based on the analytics of your risk, and helping the patients to be managed at home and do that within the workflow of the tools that they were using before the pandemic. So this is the sort of response we had and allowed us to quickly grow and now we're deploying telehealth solutions and connectivities as part of that platform across the landscape of our clients. So being able to quickly pivot and being able to quickly address those solutions allow us to continue to grow and add value to our clients. By the way, I appreciate your pointing out our Series C raise. And yes, um, you know, just in the, quite completely surprising to us, just in the second quarter of this fiscal year, we actually had tremendous growth, which is not something that we necessarily all expected, right, when we hit the pandemic. And even coming into the third quarter, which we're now two weeks into, our growth continues to escalate. So it's the ability to pivot, innovate, and work with our clients to allow them to innovate, to deal with solutions as they arise uh, and, and address these barriers such as the pandemic has brought forth. Data-driven insights and value-based care, David, is so important and we appreciate the work that you're doing there. But I'm really interested, at the ACLC, we always think about, of course, what it's going to take to drive value-based care in, in our industry and workforce development is also another important thing. And I, I saw recently Innovators doing some interesting work there. You know, you hired uh, Dr. Josko Silobrisic away from Harvard School of Public Health. You're looking to create an academy to support workforce development and you know different learning initiatives. And then just recently, I saw that Innovator was participating in an, a virtual learning community called Cares One. So I just wanted to ask you. I mean, what are your thoughts on workforce development as it relates to value-based care transformation? That is a very important point. I appreciate you bringing it up. You know, accountable care, population health, patient-centered care, this is something we've all been working at for a while. And yet its growth has been relatively nascent. 
you know, I think for most health systems, and therefore, as a result, I think for most payers as well, it's been a bit on the sidelines. Uh, so we have the MSSP program from uh, the federal government. We have various private players who, uh, the health plans that have experimented with different types of accountable care organization versions of their own. Some people have tried other risk-based contracts, such as bundle care. But it's been a relatively smaller portion of the overall business for uh, the healthcare industry. And the growth has been very incremental. When the, when the pandemic hit, there was a tremendous concern that that could even be potentially backslide or potentially accelerate given our experience in the second quarter. What is key is that it requires new learning and new skills to be able to better leverage and understand the value of thinking about accountable care, of population health. So we recognize the need to, to educate people. Uh, we created this concept of the academy, Innovator Academy, or what we often refer to now as the Care is One Academy, as a way to provide cross-fertilization amongst people that are being very successful in accountable care and have those learnings across different paradigms within the accountable care uh, experience and competency need to be able to share that and educate other folks. Now, this is an ongoing work in progress, but it's been great. Um, our data platform has been able to be leveraged to provide a opportunity to think about what are the key value levers that have been made our clients successful, whether that be data-driven insights or analytics or telehealth, and then provide the education to the various people moving into accountable care as needed as we both deploy to our customers as well as to the community as large. So the Care is One community is our effort to provide a educational learning platform to the general community. Our Invasor Academy is offered to our clients where they can provide a variety of educational tools and resources where the learnings from our various accountable care clients can be leveraged. Uh, and we also use it internally for our own work, workforce development as we continue to grow and hire new people. So David, you're, you're doing this phenomenal work and providing your clients with data-driven insights and analytics. You're helping them learn and become empowered to succeed in value-based payment. But I'm really interested, how do you, as a, you know, at your core, you know, you're a technology vendor, how do you transcend that vendor-customer relationship to truly become a partner? You know, here at the ACLC, we're really big on collaborative partnerships, and our founder, Mike Levitt, built a storied career in healthcare transformation by forging important collaborative partnerships. And we're very intentional about thinking it. How do we serve a role in, in, in providing a collaborative network to really focus on the skills necessary to, to succeed in accountable care? And I'm thinking about how, how does Innovacer approach this? I mean, how, do you, how are you able to transcend the typical vendor-customer relationship? And, and do you have any success stories from some of your clients where you, you, it really epitomizes the, the true definition of partnership and accountable care? No, great question, and I appreciate it. I think the concept of collaboration um, has been relatively a unique journey for us. If you think about technology vendors uh, in the history of technology and healthcare, it's been largely, I have a solution for a particular thing, and then I'm going to sell you that solution, uh, whether that be a, a EMR or a care coordination platform or an analytics tool. And 
the technology I'm, I'm selling you does what it does. And I'm saying, well, I think you might have a problem purchase this. Our journey's been a little different and the, the flexible innovations and in technology that we have seen in the market and that we've been able to leverage here allow us to do that. So as an example, Mercy One was our first client. It's a nice example of that journey. And one of our co-founders, the medical director of an ACO, Mercy One, and he said, well, I have a problem. I, my claims data is all in one place and my clinical data is another. I'm doing analytics, but I can't look across and combine them. As we know, in accountable care, quality and costs are truly important to be able to leverage together. And the data quality I have is not all that great, and it doesn't come to me in real time. And I can't really harmonize the information, nor get insights out of it. And my workforce need insights because they're busy, the doctors, the care coordinators, the patients, and they, they need insights in real time to be able to work together as a team. So our co-founders have, geez, that's an interesting problem. Let's work together to solve that problem. And so the idea of combining, combining the claims data with the clinical was the first step in that journey. The next step was, how do we think about managing the quality of that data so it can be trusted? How do we think about how that data needs to be turned into an insight, whether that is in managing the contract to be successful or to the various players, the physicians, the care managers? And then how do we stand up within their existing infrastructure and the technology investments they've made today? Because... They don't want to lose those investments. How do we wrap around those things to really help you accomplish the goals that you're informing us about? So that process of collaboration from the initial interaction with a client is one that we have used in every engagement we've had with every client. So we're not bringing a solution saying, here's the solution, like we're a population health vendor or we're an analytics vendor or in other markets that we're now entering, we're a Medicare Advantage vendor for a, or we're a fire interoperability vendor. We are all those things and many more. It's the flexibility of the unique technology of using machine learning and AI and automating workflows and being able to wrap that technology in in a, in a modular way on top of their existing investments to solve the problems collaboratively that they're facing and then continuing that journey with our clients is what makes us successful. So with each of our clients, we start one place to solve a problem and continue to work across and expand our work with that client collaboratively to solve additional problems along the way. So our growth has been both new customers as well as continued growth within our existing customers because of that collaborative. David, I love hearing you talk about your collaborative approach and, and what you've done both for your clients as well as for um, sharing learning with each other and, and using that learning to help your workforce and, and to help your, your clients' workforce in their development. As Eric mentioned, and as you know, the ACLC really values the collaboration, the sharing of lessons, and, and helping the industry learn and accelerate towards succeeding in value. Um, how would you say that your experiences with the ACLC has been supportive of your work in these areas? Uh, I've, I've been very proud of the collaboration we've had with the ACLC. And you know, my personal interest has always been one of collaboration. We are not gonna solve these problems in healthcare unless we work together. And that's where that, the framing of our mantra here at, at Innovation of care as one comes from. <laughs> we want to care as one for patients and for populations and for communities. And, and so that's a, that's a key aspect of that. Um, you know, I've always been interested in thinking about 
policy, bringing stakeholders together, having them brainstorm and collaborate to solve the problems that they have. Um, and that's really what ACLC has really done, is to bring together the various stakeholders across different communities and share their learnings and then tackle a specific problem together collaboratively uh, by both sharing their experiences, sharing their successes, and then brainstorming together to find solutions, solution paths, and then being able to publicly reveal those uh, paths uh, to the broader community. So that's my understanding of what ACLC has really brought to the table around helping the learnings of accountable care to expand. And I, I think that's why we are so proud to be a participant. And so, you know, collaboration is the core of how we're going to succeed, particularly in this pandemic environment and come out of it in a better place, which I believe we are. And I, I really applaud the work that we're doing at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. David, I really appreciate you saying that and, and appreciate your partnership and involvement with the ACLC. You're definitely an important contributor and we value having you innovate with us in this work. To your point about your history of an interest in collaboration and, and policy and pulling um, organizations together, uh, you actually worked with Dr. Paul Grundy, the kind of co-founder. You, you both created the patient-centered uh, primary care collaborative together. The industry knows Paul as kind of the godfather of the patient-centered medical home revolution. Do you, do you uh, and your coworkers, you know, when you're when you've got Dr. Grundy at the water cooler, would, are you guys calling him Godfather? <laughs> well, Paul's been a good friend for uh, going on now for two decades, and, and he's very proud of that term. Um, <laughs> you know, both Dr. Grundy and I work for large Fortune 50 companies. Uh, Dr. Grundy was chief medical officer with, with, Innovace, with uh, IBM and I with McKesson. And uh, being friends, we would reach out to each other and saying, how do we solve this problem in the industry? How do we get people to have the light bulb go off and, and move forward? And I still remember the, the day Dr. Grundy called me and said, you know, we think we want to break the backs of, of healthcare and really empower primary care and move the concept of primary care forward in this country. As you know, primary care has been very marginalized. It's less than 5%, if not 4% of the total spend. All the spend goes to high profit specialty care, uh, historically. And so um, I, I said, that sounds great. And he, his concept was is to leverage the large employer perspective to uh, get people to actually do things. So one of the first things he did is got the four CEOs of the leading primary care organizations together in a room and said, all right, you guys can't leave that room until you come up with a set of principles that we as large employers will drive through the industry. And uh, Dr. Grundy has a great story about where he actually, you know, worked with another organization and uh, threatened to, you know, pull IBM's uh, contract if uh, they didn't move forward with it. Uh, primary care empowerment. So that's where the term godfather came from, the <laughs> analogy there, uh, the leveraging of that sort of clout. <laughs> so he's very proud of the name. And you had a really important role in that as well, and, and obviously very involved with the patient-centered primary care collaborative and, and the patient-centered medical home movement. Um, I want to ask you about the study published in the American Journal of Managed Care last week. This shows that combining ACOs with PCMHs does not necessarily lead to double the savings. Having said that, I do want to recognize that you know we talk to 
Edwin Estevez, CEO of RGV ACO, in our last podcast. And, and they actually used the PCMH model to get all of their independent physicians PCMH recognition. And it's on that model that they've built the success of their ACO. So maybe that's a, a, a unique story when we looked at this um, study. But I, I'm curious to your response. Why do you think a hybrid ACO PCMH model doesn't necessarily result in greater reductions in healthcare costs compared to standalone models? That's a great question. And you know, it allows you know, us to think about what we mean when we talk about the patient-centered medical home and what the history is about accountable care organizations. So, you know, first and foremost, the patient-centered medical home was a set of collaborative principles that were driven forth by what is now the, the PCC, the organization patient-centered care medical home was really driven by. So the idea was is patients need to have a a relationship with a trusted advisor and someone who knows them and has a relationship. That the care that's delivered and quartered back by that trusted advisor would be a whole person care, meaning not just my knee replacement, not just my heart. I still remember a, a renal doc that was taking care of my father said, don't ask me a question about the heart. I'm a, I'm a kidney doctor. <laughs> I don't know anything about the heart. I thought, great. Um, you know, you really need to understand people as a whole. And so whole person care, that care should be coordinated because there are lots of people that take care of patients and populations, and they need to work together. They need to care as one. That the care should be high quality, which is often evidence-based or in the lack of evidence that it is uh, best practices that we know in the community. And we know from the work at Dartmouth that there's high variation in quality that's relatively unexplained other than where you train and that there needs to be enhanced access to care. Uh, patients you know, experience tons of friction in trying to navigate the great pinball machine of healthcare. You know, just to have an appointment, you have to wait six weeks, uh, take a day off of work, drive your car, find a parking space, wait in an office, fill out another clipboard with paper that somebody's gonna data enter again, because you've answered those questions a gazillion times. Uh, maybe make errors in that data entry. Uh, you leave the doctor's office. You don't remember exactly what was told. You don't know how to ask additional questions. You forget. And the payment has not really reflected the quality and the value inherent in such coordinated care, enhanced access, whole person care. That's the patient-centered medical home. Those were principles that were driven. And to your point, NCQA uh, did step forward to create a certification process to try to help some people be recognized as having some of the core basics of those aspects, whether they're working in a fee-for-service arena or a clinically integrated network or in an uh, accountable care type risk-based contract. The ACO came out of Dartmouth, interestingly, because of an interest that Elliot Fisher had, who came, first came up with the term ACO, accountable care organization, in unexplained variation of care, similar driver, and the concept of the ACO, which then became leveraged initially, I think, most widely known by the uh, CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, as a contracting model for Medicare, and then private payers leveraged that concept, the principles of the ACO largely come down to, how do I become financially accountable for a population, population care? Uh, how do I think about whole care right? Whole person care or whole population care within that financial accountability. 
how do I coordinate care across the various members providing care to uh, the patient or the population? How do I create through data and analytics that focus on quality, right? High quality care. And, and how do I make sure that payment is available to support those principles? So as you can see, there's tremendous overlap between the principles of the patient-centered medical home and accountable care organizations. In fact, most accountable care organizations say that the primary care and the concept, the principles of the patient-centered medical home are the foundation of what they do. So these are overlapping concepts, which explains why they're not separate and distinct entities. The uh, certification processes for both vary wildly for ACOs, whether it's MSSP, private payer, et cetera, just as the NCQA certification process was largely built as an entry point to looking at some of the aspects of the principles of the patient-centered medical home. Bottom line here is the patient-centered medical home as a concept of primary care and the accountable care are overlapping, uh, mutually inclusive concepts that are both journeys of which we've only embarked upon. David, I want to know a little bit more about this journey that we're taking as it pertains to digital transformation. And I, I was shocked when Innovacer released its survey earlier this year, and it showed that most um, provider organizations are still in their pilot phase of value-based performance and, and their risk-based transition. Only about 30% of those surveyed said that they have all their patient data in one place and, and they're not really using artificial intelligence. And what does this lackluster progress tell us about really achieving that truest aim of having democratized data and widespread interoperability in the healthcare industry? I mean, just as much as the ACLC is looking to lead a movement in value-based care workforce development, I really see Innovacer leading an equally important move towards data activation and creating a unified longitudinal patient record. And I just wanna know more about like, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, what is it gonna take in our country and our health system to truly deliver on that promise of a unified patient record? I mean, if I look at the good things that are happening, you have the fire interoperability standard, you have blue button 2.0, Karen Alliance. I mean, there's a lot of great things that are happening to activate data and create that liquidity to support population health man management. But then you have all these challenges, whether it's unintended consequences with HIPAA or EHR vendor data blocking. How do we overcome the bad, leverage the good, and then ultimately create the idealized state of uh, true population health management through a unified patient record? So let me try to capture sort of the, the, the journey, and I think you put it very well, talking about the journey that we're, we're going through in healthcare. And we'll use COVID as an example. So one of our, <clears throat> we have uh, recently been working very closely with one of the largest health systems in the country. And when COVID hit, you know, they came to us and said, we have a huge problem. Um, and we all remember this, right, as a population in the country. We have, can't keep real-time estimate of what beds we have available, intensive care beds particularly, where our experts are that can do intubation to get people on a ventilator, such as anesthesiologists, where they're located and, and match them up with somebody with a room. We can't tell where our vents are in real time. We can't tell what patients are coming into the ER because we have all these different silos in our organization. We have a staffing 
program, which tells us where different people are. We have a supply system, which tells us where the different ventilators are. We have a rooming system, which tells us where the rooms are. We have trackers for personnel, which tells us where they are, but we have nothing that can tell us in real time how things are evolving. And the EMR is just one place that data is put around the information about a patient, so that's not very helpful. And we were able to go in and look at all of these different systems they have, the EMRs, the data warehouses, the staffing solutions, the financial accountability solutions, and quickly, very quickly, pull it all together to create a command center. So they had visibility of all of this information with a single view in real time and be able to match it up and be able to address those issues, again, in real time to maximize their efficiency. That's the sort of coordination we have. And uh, to your point in that survey, you know, most organizations have just begun their journey, put their toe in the water around accountable care. Um, and partly that is because they don't have any way to pull together all these different data sources and really understand that information to efficiently and effectively migrate to being successful in an accountable care contract at a large, in a massive scale way. And, and so this is the, the piece that we engendered us off. For us, being able to pull together data very quickly requires machine learning to have it do it automatically and to have those machines learn. So every time they touch another data source, they understand it and be able to manage the quality of that data so it's trustable. To use artificial intelligence to be able to identify key issues that need to be put into the workflow of whatever systems people are using to give them insights about actions they now need to take or whenever possible to automate those actions when a human is not required to do it, to create efficiency in the process. So, so these are the key pieces that we've brought to the table, but I think the industry at large is still suffering from sort of two aspects. One is inertia. <laughs> so before COVID, COVID's been a nice impact on our, in, in a silver lining way on our industry because it's allowed people to quickly innovate but historically, people don't like to change. They've made investments in their systems. They're very busy and they keep doing what they're doing. And that's been in a fee-for-service world. And so inertia has been a big, big barrier to moving to accountable care. But the other is these data silos. People have made huge investments. Like just talking about some of the larger EMRs, I've talked to organizations that have spent a billion or more in their EMR. And so making that investment in something that is not connected with all these other systems and data silos, or as you say, information blocking, is a, is a challenge. And this concept of interoperability, which has been more a concept in our industry, of which we've made progress toward, you pointed out blue button, now fire, which is an evolving standard, um, are all things that we certainly leverage very quickly to rapidly allow people to iterate, combine their data, use machine learning, and to get insights to make people uh, efficient and effective in what they're, they're doing in a new world, which is why the pandemic has resulted in greater growth for us because of the technology platform we use, uh, where for if you're stuck with all these data silos and legacy ways of doing things, it's more of a challenge. So I hope that provides some insight into sort of what we saw in the survey and what we're now experiencing both at Innovacer and in the pandemic. David, those are great insights. And uh, to build on something you mentioned in your response, you were talking about AI. Um, obviously, AI has be become very important to Innovacer. I think there's a lot of potential for AI, you know, with many applications that the industry could benefit from, like predictive modeling, risk stratification, 
robot-assisted surgery, virtual nursing assistance, provider workflow assistance, um, even automated image diagnoses, as I said, many applications to it. And you guys have invested in it. You're probably ahead of the curve in regards to AI. Um, in fact, you launched an AI-driven data platform that, uh, as I understand, integrates with, as you've said, over um, many EHRs, probably 300 plus EHRs, if I understand it correctly, claim systems, laboratory systems, and financial systems. Can you talk to us a little more about your AI solution that you have for enabling care management um, and the workflows and point of care alerts that it, that it will enhance? And, and based on what you've seen so far when it comes to AI, a second question is, are you confident that actionable intelligence will be obtained from it uh, for improving uh, risk scoring, enhanced value care, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the term artificial intelligence, or what we like to say is augmented intelligence, <laughs> because humans are a very important portion of delivering healthcare, particularly around the, the concept of a trusted relationship. You know, the, it really breaks down into three stages. The first is being able to have all the data pulled together, analyzed, and then be able to provide a insight. And so this is a key component of AI, is being able to provide insights based on all the data available, not any single source of data that was built to serve a particular application, like an EMR or a lab system or a radiology system. So having all of that data in near or real time is available to be harmonized and then activated into an insight, we say activated data, is a key first step in AI. So providing insights in regard to whatever systems people are using in the work they're doing within their workflow, not having them to go to a portal, not having them to toggle into another system, but providing that insight is a key aspect of artificial intelligence. The next piece is then activating that insight into a recommended action. So having insight-driven action recommendations is the next piece, is being able to have folks working within their EMR, within their lab system, uh, within their care management system, within their smartphone as they walk around, being able to provide insights with recommended actions is the next stage of AI that we leverage. So for instance, we, when we were all flying around in airplanes prior to the pandemic, we all remember getting, as we prepare with our suitcase to leave for the airport, getting a little text that comes in on your phone. It says, by the way, your plane is delayed an hour and a half. Please uh, take your time. So there's a uh, insight with a recommendation. Uh, I can act on it or not. I can leave for the airport or, or I can just take another hour and a half and, and take that action. The last stage of AI, when appropriate, is to actually automate that action. And so this is another piece of AI that we leverage across our system. So being able to have the system in a workflow, have the people that oversee that workflow say, oh, I don't need to be involved because I trust this data, I trust the insights generated, I trust the actions taken, and I'll allow them to be automated, really drive the efficiency and care. So the concept that you mentioned that we're connected to all these EMRs and lab systems and other sources, claims data from payer, really allow us to use machine learning, which is a form of AI, to have those systems say, oh, here's another version of another EMR that I've seen before, but there seems to be some changes because everybody customizes things. 
let me automate the ingestion of that data into a unified patient record, and yet occasionally kick out and say, oh, I need a human to check in and say, am I making the right mapping in this, right? But you've suddenly taken what have taken months to compress that into just days and weeks in terms of the machine doing the work. And the same thing for putting insights into the workflow of the various people. Um, so hopefully that provides some, some overview of how we think about AI uh, and how we leverage it in, in creating the efficiency of what we do. One other thing I would like to say is having this sort of solution approach where we can in real time have the machines do so much of the work and connect various data sources, unify it and put it into a single patient record has allowed us to have payers who have always been interested in being able to access in a private and secure way the inf clinical information from the EMRs in their system and do automated chart review, but then also take the information they have as payers, which is much broader than anyone has in their EMR, and put that into the workflow of the physicians that they're contracted with and to provide insights when they're seeing the patient in their workflow and provide these sort of AI-driven insights into the workflow of the physician. So this is where we've been very successful in the Medicare Advantage world of having payers and providers collaborate using this sort of artificial intelligence-driven technology. David, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I mean, I feel like we've come full circle. And we started when you were 14. <laughs> we've talked about where you are today and leading Innovacer uh, to the future of healthcare. We've had a wide array of different topics from COVID-19 to AI to digital transformation, patient-centered medical home. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, you're, you're, like, demand when it comes to, you know, health policy. I mean, you were on a task force for Hillary Clinton. Uh, you've done a lot of great work. Of course, you know, the incredible work you did in creating the patient-centered primary care collaborative. And I, I wanted to ask you something, a, a little bit about policy. And, I, it, you know, this is... You know, I'm just reading what's going on in our industry. And, you know, of course, you know, Medicare Advantage has become more and more of a predominant payment model for the last few years. I mean, as it stands today, you know, let's look at it. I mean, MA is 35% of the Medicare program, 22 million lives, and it's projected to reach 50% by 2025 with 34 million plus enrolled. And then you have this COVID-19 pandemic flashpoint. And so here's my thinking, right? And, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but if you have, you know, let's say, you know, 10 million people drop out of employer-based, you know, health insurance, you're going to have more and more cost shifting in the employer market, um, you know, due to the job losses and COVID-19 and having level of benefit and employers could potentially see 20 to 40% premium increases next year. I mean, is this going to create some type of collapse in the commercial marketplace and open up a Medicare Advantage for all opportunity. I mean, I know our, our country doesn't really have the, at, at this point, maybe a, the political appetite for single payer. Maybe we do, but um, I'm really interested in this concept of Medicare Advantage for all as a potential scenario for payment reform and just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Well, that's great. Uh, first, I'd like to point out, I don't have a crystal ball. But I will, I will say that, you know, I, I think back to the words of one of the initial ACL meetings when Governor Levitt came on board to meet with ACL stakeholders when the pandemic was starting to share his experience with uh, the prior near pandemic that he was involved with when he was head of HHS. 
And, you know, he pointed out something very astute. You know, we've been making significant progress toward understanding accountable care and moving away from a fee-for-service system. And this pandemic would do one of two things. Either it would allow people to rapidly learn to do things new ways and overcome inertia, uh, which has been a barrier, or because of the financial implications of the pandemic, and to your point, you've pointed out some of them, right? People losing their health insurance and what will become of that. You know, either that or people will backslide and try to regain the financial losses they had by trying to provide high service, you know, high profitable service lines to those people who can afford it. Uh, I tend to be an optimist. And three months in, four months in now, I actually see uh, the head, us heading in the right direction. Uh, health systems have been incredible with how quickly they've been able to innovate. If think about telehealth. We never were able to uh, really leverage telehealth in a major way. It's been a tool that's sat on the sidelines. Same with virtual care, which is being able to provide those tools in the home to monitor care and provide care without people having to come to an institution or even hospital. We actually think that um, most healthcare can be done virtually, connecting not just healthcare, but healthcare with the community to address the, the social barriers to care, the social, economic, and environmental, or the social determinants of care. There's tremendous opportunity for changes in the way we're doing things, of which people are already leveraging. Um, Medicare Advantage is one where the, uh, as you pointed out, rapidly growing because of the way the incentives are aligned. I think private payers will learn from that. I think health systems will find new ways to reach out and connect with payers, private payers, to find new ways to contract and deliver care in the new learnings that they're having with the pandemic. So I tend to be an optimist and think that our current healthcare system in the way that we have employer-driven care with uh, private insurers or self-insured employers will continue to thrive in the future because we are quickly learning and pivoting. This is unique to America in the face of a crisis. Um, I also see the risk of backsliding. And I think if that does occur in any significant way that it could lead us to the outcome that, that you have described, which is you know, us being in a, in a financially depleted area where the only solution uh, to addressing that is some sort of single payer. I don't see that as all that likely. I think that we're a creative society and I think through collaborations like the ACLC brings to the table, through the leveraging and finally the pandemic-induced silver lining of us learning to use these new technologies and establish more creative ways of providing and financing care that at the end of a year from now, we'll look back and say, geez, this was an opportunity for us to finally move forward in the way we deliver high-quality, reasonably-cost care in this country. So, David, I wanted to ask you about social determinants of health. It's so important, and we've been thinking a lot about this in the ACLC, and you know, population health is, is so crucial, and I think now our society is thinking more and more about that, and that's the 85%, right? I mean, if you look at it, the 85% of a person's health and well-being falls outside of the healthcare system, and what thinking and, and what steps is Innovacer taking and in really promoting these type of targeted interventions in communities to make sure that social determinants of health are adequately addressed? That's a great question. And, you know, we've known for quite some time that from initial work 
brokered by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, that some 80 to 85% of the outcome of care for patients, uh, of their health outcomes, is driven by the social, environmental, and economic and behavioral aspects of their life. And very little, this was the, I think, chagrinning part of the analyses that were done by many different parties, only some five, maybe upwards of 10 in some analyses, percent of the outcomes are driven by medical care that's delivered. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty chagrinning. I mean, that's a new word, maybe. I, a lot of people don't want to look at that data and information because it's a little bit, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes. We clearly know that we have you know, learn so much about how to deliver evidence-based care and so much of our healthcare workers are doing tremendous work and we save lives. But we have this iceberg underneath of these other issues that we have not been able to connect. How does the healthcare system, because it's financed to deliver fee-for-service healthcare, how does it collaborate with the community in both understanding a patient's drivers of health outcomes, being able to address them, being able to address the economic, environmental, the uh, behavioral aspects uh, of a patient's care, and connect that as part of the delivery of whole person care, right? The parent principles of what the patient-centered medical home and, and the accountable care organization were all set out to do. So these are things we do at Innovation. You know, we were the first to publish, uh, I think, a social vulnerability index outside of CMS who had done a little bit of work in this area that really incorporates collecting all the data to be able to show the risk of an individual from a social, environmental, and economic perspective. In addition to medical risk scores that we already use, John Hopkins has a you know, risk score, the HCC is being used by the CMS, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to combine this new risk score to be able to identify when the patient's social, economic, and environmental issues or behavioral issues are paramount to be addressed versus the clinical or some combination of the two. And many of our clients are using this sort of approach. We also are working with the accountable communities of care model in a variety of different aspects. State of Washington, we've done a number of uh, initiatives in the ACH model where we are bringing in community workers as part of the connectivity with the healthcare system and providing that unified data platform to be able to give community workers along with the health traditional healthcare constituents, the ability to work together, care as one as a team, and be able to address these issues. Uh, my friend David Nash, you know, the founder of the first school and now College of Population Health at Jefferson, often says and points out that the two biggest determinants of a patient's medical outcome are their zip code that they live in and their credit score. Not their, you know, uh, uh, maybe a test around uh, their cardiovascular status, not their blood pressure, not whether or not they were rehospitalized, their zip code and their credit score. So this tells us that there's a tremendous need to address this. And using a healthcare data approach where we can connect the healthcare system with the community and be able to address these more effectively and provide data and analytics, such as our social vulnerability index to give insights to people as to how these traditionally separate workers in the field, the public health, the community organizations, and the healthcare system can now care as one, both for individual patients 
and for populations to more fully address their need. And I think ultimately this will lead to a tremendous leap forward in our ability to address the quality of care delivered to patients and populations and the cost of care, which is so desperately needed to be addressed, particularly in this post-pandemic environment. What a great way to end this conversation today. I mean, truly caring as one and making this movement in this race to value happen in our country. Dr. David Nace, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honor uh, speaking with you today. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. So if our listeners want to learn more about Innovacer and the work that you're doing, how can they find out? How can they engage uh, and learn more? Well, we have a website, and so that's the easiest way. And, and so certainly go to the website, and there's if there's a little click on. If you want to know information, click on there and fill out your name and contact information, and we will reach out to you. I'll have to say, and this has really been amplified in the uh, pandemic era that we're in, is we're doing a lot of virtual education, webinars, uh, local community get-togethers virtually, where we're educating people in general about the opportunities in our industry And obviously, as part of that participation, we're happy to connect and uh, address issues that you see of interest that are arisen in those things. So the thing, go to the website. We have that information available. And most importantly, join the Care as One community. And certainly, we're happy to work with ACLC and make that information about how to join the Care as One community as a way to connect with other people in the field and learners and other organizations like the ACLC that are helping us all to learn together and to care as one together. Thanks, Dr. Nace. This is great. Thanks so much, David. Really enjoyed having you on today. It's been my joy and uh, it's been fun. You guys are doing great work. Let's work together to care as one.